night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Great to have you along with us tonight as we kick off another week. I've got to, I've got to make a confession right away here. Okay. I'm not sure if that volume is good. Um, I've been going through, it seems like this happens all the time too. I've been going through a lot of equipment changes here in the studio, trying to improve things. And actually I had to replace of a piece, replace a piece of equipment that was starting to fail, which I think I may have talked about during one of our programs in the last couple of weeks. But it's, um, the process of replacing this piece of equipment hasn't been very smooth. Uh, the piece of equipment I'm talking about is a mic processor, which, uh, gives me a clarity in in my voice, and it gives me uh, the what I need to hear in my headphones. All those things, which are really important, you need to you need to be comfortable when you open the microphone and start talking. I've got three different mic processors here that I've been trying to replace the one I was using with, and none of them are working the way I want them to. It just illustrates to me that the one I had, which was probably I don't know twenty five, maybe thirty years old. I had, didn't have it that whole time. But it was part of the radio stations that I used to own, and I grabbed it when I sold the stations, and I put it in the studio here. And it's, it was a fantastic processor. Uh, it gave me the, exactly the sound I wanted, and I haven't been able to match that. And so I hear distortion, I hear hisses, I hear all these weird things. And if you tuned in to the political program, the other show that I'm doing earlier tonight, you know that I was having problems with it too. I'm not sure I even mentioned it. You probably heard them though. So forgive me if I'm a little frustrated with that. It's just, it's one of those things, having done this for as long as I have, when I don't get the sound that I want, I get very, very frustrated and it probably spills out a little bit into, uh, into what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. So let me apologize in advance for that. Regardless, we're going to have a fantastic conversation tonight. We've got a returning guest. Paul Anthony Wallace will be with us. And uh, he's a writer and a researcher, and he's written a new book. It's called The Scars of Eden. I believe when he was with us last time, and I don't remember exactly when that was, but I think when he was here, we were talking about another of his books called Escaping from Eden. You can hear Eden in both of those titles here. But we're going to be talking about humanity possibly confusing the idea of God with memories of ET contact. In other words, are things that are described as miraculous or divine in nature actually coming from uh, just high, uh, 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 an advanced technology, an alien technology? Uh, we're going to explore those ideas with uh, Paul Anthony Wallace tonight. Looking forward to that. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel and the Twitch channel. I know our uh, Twitch channel numbers, um, some of the subscriptions have expired. So if you've got Amazon Prime and you use that to subscribe to the Twitch channel, you need to redo that every month. We appreciate you doing that. It gives us some support, helps our channel get seen, and helps our discussions become heard. So we appreciate you doing that. So Twitch and YouTube, both of those channels can be found by searching for JV Johnson. Very simple to find them. Also, the the uh, podcast of the show doing very, very well. Thank you for that. If you have not uh, shared it or subscribed to it, just go to your favorite podcast platform and search for Beyond Reality Paranormal, and you'll find it fairly easily. Subscribe, share, do all those wonderful things. We appreciate that. 
uh, when you do that for us. So thank you. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we will have our guest who is actually connecting with us from Australia tonight. Yes, that's right. All the way basically on the other side of the planet, which makes this discussion of ET and technology uh, even more interesting and poignant. But we'll have uh, Paul Anthony Wallace on in just a moment. It's Beyond Reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've got a good friend and returning guest, Paul Anthony Wallace, joining us again tonight. Paul is a writer and a researcher. We're going to be talking about his new book, The Scars of Eden. And I believe when Paul was on last, we were talking about escaping from Eden. Paul, welcome back to Beyond Reality. Great to have you here with us again. G'day, JV. It's great to be back with you. Thanks for so, having me yeah, on I'm again. So, yeah, I'm trying to remember. When, when was that? It had to be about a year ago, right? Maybe even longer? I'm not sure. I, I, time flies. Yeah. It really does, because I think it was February last year yeah. that we last spoke, and that was just ahead of Escaping from Eden being released. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. In February of last year, such an ominous time because the world was on the cusp of changing forever, oh, right? <laughs> things were about to happen. That's absolutely right. You're in Australia. I think you had a, I think you had a cold as well. <laughs> Probably did. You know, I, I will say one thing, and I, I'm not going to – you know, I got to knock on wood. I got to do all those things. But I will say one thing. Uh, because of the social distancing, the mask wearing, and the and the fact that I haven't traveled in a year, um, I haven't caught a cold or had any other kind of, you know, those pesky illnesses that you get every winter. None of that has affected me this year. So I guess that's, that's the silver lining here, right? It is. And it's the same here. None of our family have, have had a cold in the last year. Wow, but it tell, that'll tell you something. And I have to ask you because you're in Australia. Um, you know, we we get reports on how you folks are handling this pandemic. But how are things there? Well, it depends what part of Australia you live in. I'm very fortunate to live in the Australian Capital Territory, and we've had we've had no C19 for months and months and months. Oh, wow. uh, so there's been a very low alert level here. Perhaps that's because. This is where all the politicians are. I don't know. But uh, other parts of Australia have, have done it a lot tougher than, than we have. And uh, aside from seeing a few shops where you'll see people wearing masks if they're all in close quarters, you really wouldn't know anything was going on if you were oh, wow. in Canberra. Wow. Well, that's got to be a little bit refreshing. Are you, are you getting vaccinated over there? Do you have supplies of the vaccine yet? Yeah, the government is very enthusiastic about the uh, vaccine, uh, even the one that three countries have uh, said they're not going to pursue at the moment because it doesn't seem completely safe. Our government is enthusiastic about even that one. Yeah, there were some reports. I think it was the AstraZeneca. Uh, the AstraZeneca one, that's right. It's yeah. Germany, Germany, Italy, and uh, and one other country might be Norway, said, no, that they're concerned about some reactions to that. Yeah, there was something so about just, clotting or coagulation, and I think they're just, it's just an abundant, right. abundance of caution, which we certainly can respect. But 
that's not that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. We're talking about something far more uh, deep, I would have to say. But um, you have a new book. Is the new book Scars of Eden? Is that been released already? Uh, no, but it is available for pre-order. You can go and pre-order the Scars of Eden from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you can find books. You you can pre-order it, and then it will fly off the shelves in the warehouse at the end of April. End of and, April. Uh, Live at your front door. Okay, so let's talk a little bit. Give us like the 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 brief description of what this particular book is about, and then we'll get into some of these details. Sure. Well, the the subtitle really explains it. Has humanity confused the idea of God with memories of ET contact? And the reason I wrote the Scars of Eden was because it really flowed on from my research for Escaping from Eden, and in that book, I argue that. hidden in plain sight in our ancient texts, and in particular the text of Genesis, is a totally unfamiliar story of where we all came from. And it's a story that says that our ancestors were genetically modified from a primate ancestor by extraterrestrial visitors who came to Earth and colonized the planet and used our ancestors as their general workforce. So I found that narrative in the Bible and just go through the explanation of how that got hidden through centuries of translation. That's what uh, came out in Escaping from Eden. And then the story took on a life of its own because as soon as Escaping from Eden was published, a couple of things happened. And one was, first of all, I I sat down with my parents-in-law, who are devout Christians. They're from Ghana, the Baptist and Pentecostal background. And I thought I'd better warn them about this book that's coming out. It's, it might be a bit confronting for them. Right. And uh, we've got a background noise there. Not sure what that was. And uh, so they came and stayed for the weekend, and we had some nice food and some nice wine. And when everyone was relaxed, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll bring it up now. And so I said, I'll just tell you what my new book is about and talk them through what I just explained to you. And essentially said the Bible is really based on uh, the Sumerian uh, narratives that talk about sky people engineering our ancestors. And I explained the story, and they listened very politely, weren't giving any reaction. And finally, when I finished, my father in law leant back and he said, Paul, a penny has dropped. And my mother in law leant forward and she said, Paul, we all kn- already know this story. Because in Ghana, yes, they grew up with a Christian upbringing, but the Ghanaian folklore carries stories of another presence on planet Earth that has a hands-on involvement in our affairs and that is involved in an ongoing hybridization program because they're not quite the same as us and they take human beings to get some of our genetic coding into the gene pool. And I discovered this is a story known not only in Ghana but all around the uh, the Western seaboard of Africa into the Caribbean, Haiti, Cuba, Brazil, tell these stories as far east as the Philippines. The story is there as well, where they have vocabulary that only exists so this story can be told. That vocab has its roots in India. You can go into Greece, Europe. In fact, the whole of Europe is named after an E.T. abductee. Um, Europa was the daughter of a king of Phoenicia. She was abducted and produced three hybrid children. One of them was uh, Minos, the progenitor of the Minoan culture. This gets taught as history. 
in Greece I discovered, not as not as fiction. And then you go into the Celtic countries, they have iterations of exactly the same story. Another non-human presence, possibly extraterrestrial, that's involved in this kind of way with us. And so my research went down that rabbit hole, took me into a new rabbit warren, and all sorts of new doors opened up. But the other thing that really compelled me to write The Scars of Eden is that since Escaping from Eden came out, every week and some weeks every day, I'm contacted by people who have had anomalous experiences that they cannot explain with their conventional worldview. And my books speak to what might need to shift in our worldview to explain what's happening to them. I hear from pastors who have seen all the things I've talked about in the texts, but they've also been counselling parishioners who've had close encounters with ET entities, it seems, and they need to know how to respond to that. And then the other big group that I hear from since Escaping from Eden is veterans of war who have gone into a country, and this was certainly true of many who went into Iraq in 2003, believing they were going for one reason, and then finding out they're actually there on an archaeological mission, retrieving artifacts to take back to America, artifacts that are connected with our most ancient stories, the ones that explain where we all came from. And so the Scars of Eden plums all that territory and finds that there is an ancient narrative that exists all over the world and has done for thousands of years with a different explanation of who we are and our place in the cosmos. So as you were telling the story or or talking with your in-laws, you expected to surprise them, but in turn, you were the one that became surprised. You were surprised to learn that these, that these, these stories were so pervasive. I was very surprised. It set me on a journey where I discovered how pervasive these stories are. But I also learned on that day that our family is very connected with another family who have had one of these abduction experiences. And this this happened in Ghana, where the daughter went missing for three years and then reappeared uh, on the beach in Anloga, Ghana. And when she reappeared and, and went back home, her parents expected to hear about a failed elopement or a kidnapping or slave trafficking or sex trafficking, something like that. And it took a while before she opened up to explain what had happened. And she said, the reason I couldn't contact you was because I was held in an underwater base and I was made to have children and the people who held me were not human. And every single one of those elements, taking and return, used for hybridization by people who look human but are not human. You can go to Wales, Ireland, Scotland, the Nordic countries, all around the world, and those are the elements that repeat. So that was a whole journey of discovery for me. Let's bring the clock forward. Let's talk a little bit about the current climate of the discussion of ET visitation and uh, disclosure. Let's start there so we can just get an understanding of where we are right now. Um, In the last few years, we've seen... I guess by historical standards, a bit of a flurry of disclosure uh, information. We we know the yeah. U.S. the U.S. military has released videos and subsequently had to explain them, and they seem to have done so somewhat honestly. Um, 
And we know we know uh, there's been Israeli officials that have done the same thing. Give us a summary of where the I don't know the global government mindset is on this right now. Well, certainly there's been a very dramatic shift in climate because for 70 years, governments around the world and uh, in the United States of America in particular had a very developed policy of debunking UFO sightings and claims of ET contact. That was their policy. Governments around the world employed people whose job was to collate public reports, and in America, the reports, uh, it was it was through U.S. defense that those reports were collected. And then people were employed whose job was to um, debunk all the stories that could easily be explained away and classify all the ones that couldn't be explained. And so the public policy was, we don't want the public taking this seriously. And then there was a shift about three years ago, and you're right, it, it begins with footage that was leaked of American defense's engagement with Tic Tac craft. And then that footage and those stories were authenticated by the Pentagon. And since then, we've heard from scientists who brief the Pentagon body that examines crash retrieval. So we've heard from the physicist Eric W. Davis talking of off-world vehicles not made on this earth and that we have groups that are an analyzing those materials. Jacques Vallée, a very eminent physicist from France, speaks openly about studying those metamaterials. We've heard from Alain Juillet, the former head of French security, talking about his involvement with that group and that work. And then most recently, as you mentioned, Haim Ashed, the former chief of space security for Israel, saying that in his 27 years in that position, he has formed the conclusion, presumably on the basis of things he can't reveal, that there is an intergalactic federation, as he calls it, uh, a presence of ET demographics who are interested in planet Earth, have a hands-on involvement somehow, but have chosen not to self-disclose. And when Hayim Ashed says that, the picture that he's painting there is exactly the same picture that you can read in the ancient Sumerian texts, in the texts of Genesis, and in so many of the world mythologies that our ancestors have curated. Was there any um, effort to discredit Ashed for his coming forward and the information that he stunned the world with? Did anybody, did the Israeli government try to disavow his claims? You see, that that is one of the very interesting shifts because we went through a period, it was a sort of a transitional period, where you would have public officials uh, or senior figures who would come forward and say something, uh, but then there would be an official distancing. So, for instance, when Ed Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, campaigned very openly for America to declassify its UFO files and to come clean about being in contact with ET demographics at a covert level. He said that publicly, even while he was bound by layers and layers of official secrets laws. But NASA felt the need to come out with a statement, um, Dr. Mitchell is a great American, but we do not share his views. You know, that kind of thing would happen. Then there was this shift, and it was about a decade ago that the Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev uh, made some statements while being filmed, 
saying that each new prime minister in Russia is given a file detailing the species that we're already in contact with. Well, Putin didn't distance himself from Prime Minister Medvedev when he said that. Hey, Meshed has made his statements and there's been no official distancing. So again, you can see we're in a different climate. There is a very deliberate, proactive putting of information out there. We're now, of course, waiting for the Senate intelligence briefings later in the year. So things are on the table. They're being discussed. They're not being debunked. And I think always we're going to have a mix of disclosure and secrecy. Not everything everybody knows in authority is going to be made public. But the public conversation is being nudged forwards almost as an insurance policy in case all of a sudden something else happens and it becomes unmistakable what's going on. But I applaud these changes. And I think the more openness we can have, the better. I'm going to ask a, a what may seem to be a bizarre question, or you may be prepared for it. I'm not sure, but if it's if it's outside of your your wheelhouse, or you feel uncomfortable talking about it, I understand that. Uh, there are people that have been talking uh, rather uh, loudly about this effort to move to a one-world government, new world order, all these buzzwords that are being thrown about. If there's any truth to any of that, and there is this effort to bring uh, nations together. And maybe under the auspices of the UN or maybe in some other fashion. Is this a symptom of what might eventually be some type of unified contact with uh, extra, extraterrestrials in a disclosure form? And whereas they, the, the, the world governments come together as one under the UN, maybe in a reaction to these contacts or maybe as a, as a result of a directive from these contacts? If I'm out in left field, tell me. <laughs> well, there are so many angles you can take when uh, wondering about one world government, where we're up to, what the agendas might be. And I think in the past, people might look at international institutions like the UN, like the World Health Organization, and say, well, clearly those are the vehicles for harmonizing everything and centralizing power. But, you know, maybe in the last year we, we can see things are a little bit messier than that. I think the, the reality is that a, a lot of power exists in the world of corporations these days. And so while we might be looking at government bodies, um, there are huge corporations that can call the shot on national and international policies uh, because of their huge economic power. And I think probably in that arena, there's a lot more one world government going on than, than we might think. It is a global market and, and the markets really do seem to run things. So uh, sometimes I think we misdirect our attention if we're fearful about one world government. But something that emerges from this whole discussion of are we in contact? And if so, who is in contact? Who's talking to the Intergalactic Federation for us? we immediately have to realize that we're talking about covert layers of government. And then our ancient texts, you read Genesis, you read the Sumerian stories, the Mesoamerican stories, and what emerges is that there is a non-human layer to the way our planet has been oversighted and governed. And perhaps one of the reasons that governments struggle with openness and disclosure uh, around this is that 
it immediately raises the question, well, who is in charge then? Right. <laughs> who is calling the shots? And where does the human race sit in the order of powers if we're talking about, to use Hermes Shedd's phrase, an intergalactic federation? What sovereignty do we have? As you look through this, uh, the historical uh, component here, and you're, you're researching and writing for the Scars of Eden, um, you discovered that much of this information, as it is today, was actually deliberately suppressed. What did you learn about that? And, and when you're talking about a more primitive people, um, whether you know it's, it's 10,000 years ago, 5,000, whatever it happens to be, would they have the same motivations to suppress as we would now? Some of the same motivations. I think, you know, at a very fundamental level, those who govern uh, want to be in control. And I think that's actually a very simple fact that has shaped some of the story of, of non-disclosure through the centuries. I mean, I said just now, for instance, would a government really want to disclose that they're not really in charge and that there are go covert layers and extraterrestrial layers to the picture. It's a little bit messy. But if you're looking for the story of suppression, that story plays out even within the Bible itself, because even if you just take the translations as we have them at face value, there is a forgetting uh, that is commanded in the scriptures. So you get to the Ten Commandments, and it says, you shall have no other powerful ones other than Yahweh. Don't depict them. Don't bow down to them. A great forgetting is being commanded. And yet there's an acknowledgement there that the Yahweh being is one of a number of powerful ones. But you're to reject the others and follow the one. And so the Ten Commandments come from a time when the writers understood this more complicated world that uh, we're a part of. You'd go a little bit further into the Hebrew story, you get to Joshua, and there's a call he puts out. He says, consider this day who you're going to work for. Cut off the powerful ones that your ancestors served in Mesopotamia. Cut off the powerful ones the Egyptians served, that the Amorites served, and serve only Yahweh. And then the stories play out, and you can see that the people of God in the story are just one human colony among many that are governed over by these entities the Bible calls the powerful ones. But the fact that they are extraterrestrial beings gradually get airbrushed out of the picture. And when you get to the 6th century BCE, there was a, a, a redaction done, a reworking of all the Hebrew books to harmonize them, turn them into a single story of monotheism, and there translation choices were made that really obscure the fact that the Elohim stories are stories of aliens, not stories about gods. But then you get to the Christian period, and some of the very early church fathers understood everything that I just said, and they were very strong on not wanting just to accept that 6th century edit and not glue those Elohim stories onto the writings of the apostles to make a Bible of Old Testament and New Testament. They didn't read them that way. They believed the Elohim stories were about a completely different kind of entity, what we would call an ET, ETs who had colonized the planet in times past. 
But what began as a kaleidoscope of theologies and a kaleidoscope of knowledge got narrowed down and narrowed down as the church evolved. And those church fathers who argued what I'm saying gradually got excommunicated, thrown out, their writings destroyed, uh, so much so that other texts had to be buried in the Nag Hammadi desert so that they wouldn't be lost forever. And then the empire gradually takes over the church so that anyone who believes these other things becomes not only a heretic, but uh, an enemy of the state because they're putting forward views that are dangerous, that take away from this lovely, neat, feudal view of God at the top, the emperor underneath, the bishops and governors under that, and the people at the bottom. And I think that's the picture that the powers don't want confused and upset by saying, well, actually, God is not at the top of these feudal powers, and the world is not quite what we think it is. And so there's been a long, long process all through the centuries, people who have argued for a populated universe, argued for what I'm saying about the biblical texts. In the past, they were excommunicated and um, executed. So I applaud the fact that we're now in a place where even the Roman Catholic Church is saying everything we're discussing needs to go back on the table and we need to get ready. This is what they said a whole decade ago. Get ready not just for the idea of a populated universe, but get ready to be in contact. There have been uh, discoveries and uh, introductions of books of the Bible that weren't included in maybe the King James Version or other versions of the Bible, at least not the commonly referenced versions of the Bible. Have those, do those books offer any more insight into these ideas than what we consider the traditional Bible books? Well, as I mentioned, there were a number of texts that didn't make their way into the canon of the New Testament, the Gnostic Gospels, and they talked about a lot of very interesting things. They did talk about altered states of consciousness and information that had come that way, information to do with the cosmos. They talked about contact with extraterrestrial beings. They talked about travel in space. So all that was part of the kaleidoscope of, of views and knowledge that was there in the beginning, and those texts buried for a long, long time before they resurfaced in the 20th century. There's another very interesting document that didn't get completely lost, but again, it didn't make its way into most people's Bibles. Although if you go to Ethiopia, to the Ethiopian church, they've always accepted the Book of Enoch as one of the books of the Bible. And if you read Genesis 6 in a, a regular Bible, the writer there assumes you've read the book of Enoch. If you read the book of Jude in the New Testament, that writer assumes you've read the book of Enoch. And that's a very interesting book because it expands on the Genesis 6 story of non-human entities coming to planet Earth in order to hybridize with human females. And that's a story that is mentioned very briefly in the Bible, but recurs in cultures and ancient narratives all around the world. Would the hybridization stories include stories of abduction? Is that related? Does it relate to abduction stories that we hear today? They are essentially the same story. I mean, the way it's put in Genesis 6 is that the Bene Elohim which is the second wave of E.T. arrivals in the Genesis story, came and took human females. Well, 
that is the abduction word, took them. That's right. And then produced children with them. And they were similar enough to us that they could use our DNA, but different enough that the children they produced didn't have a growth inhibitor in them. And so they grew very big. They became the giants, the men of legend, what the Greek called the Titans. And way back in the uh, first century of the Common Era, the Jewish historian Josephus absolutely equated those stories. He said the, the stories we hear in Greece of the Titans, those are the results of the hybridization that we read about in Genesis 6. And what we hear today from people around the world concerning abduction experiences sound all the same notes. The only real difference between the ancient stories and the contemporary stories is that we tend to treat the contemporary stories with absolute ridicule and scorn. And when somebody comes forward, I heard a lady in Australia, Jane Pooley, very sane, grounded person, a registered nurse, but she went on national television and said that she had been used for hybridization twice in her life and has two hybrid children, as well as three regular children. Now, she knew when she said that, that she was laying herself open for total ridicule and that people would react as if they'd never heard the like. But the moment you start reading ancestral narratives and world mythologies, you realize that the like has been told us for thousands and thousands of years. So we could read it in ancient texts, um, but hear it today, and we think, oh, that's absurd. When you start talking about these ideas crossing continents, uh, crossing cultures, um, all corners of the globe having similar stories and similar narratives, uh, you, you, you add a credibility to this that far exceeds you know, just an interpretation of the Christian Bible. Well, I think so. This is the really interesting thing. When you see the correlations from culture to culture, cultures that had no contact with each other in the ancient past, and you hear the stories repeat, not only from place to place, but from century to century, they begin confirming each other, because very often it's the most extraordinary details that repeat. And as I began seeing those patterns, it made me approach world mythology differently. And instead of thinking either this is literal history or it's just a fable, mm -hmm. I began asking a different question, which is what memory is being carried by this ancient story? And what intrigues me the most is there are a number of stories that appear to be carrying a visual memory. So it's not that there was one document that people adapted and retold from place to place. No, the ancestors remembered what they saw and then they use different language and different metaphors and different cultures to tell their descendants what was seen. And some of the most incredible stories I've come across are the ones that seem to be our earliest memory as a civilization. And it seems to be a memory of a time after our planet was devastated, when visitors came from off planet and helped to re-terraform the planet after it had been devastated and flooded. And so many of the stories talk about craft coming and hovering and using vortices of wind to begin clearing land and then embarking on a program of genetic engineering. All with different metaphors, different images, different names, but that story repeats from Africa to Mesoamerica. Uh, the Sumerians tell it, the Bible tells it, 
the Philippines tell it. It's the details like that that recur that really began getting my attention. Yeah, and in, in the book, in The Scars of Eden, you actually take us to all these different places, talk about these cultures, and actually connect these dots. Yeah, it's very much a world tour, and I, I hope it feels like that. It's almost like a travel book, <laughs> taking you around the world, listening to different cultures, listening to their different metaphors and language, and a bigger picture begins to emerge. And as you say, it, I think it helps people realize there's something credible here that I can give my attention to. It's not just a matter of listening to people with different individual claims that are completely subjective and can't be tested. There is a groundedness to the stories that our ancestors have carried. And being able to read them and reflect on them, well, I hope that's the gateway I'm opening in the Scars of Eden. Let's talk a little bit about who we might be talking about. Um, you know, we reference them as ETs. We reference them as aliens, as uh in, 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 in religious texts, they're considered to be divine beings of some kind. Um, but do we have any idea? Do we have clues as to who they actually might be and worth what their source is, where they're from? Well, there are some interesting clues. Many of the stories are really quite agnostic about where these other beings came from. So when you listen to some of the Native American stories of survival through some cataclysmic event in the past, they just talk about people appearing uh, who helped them. And in many of the abduction narratives around the world, it doesn't necessarily say they're extraterrestrials, but that they are a non-human presence doing this. But then there are other stories, and you do hear this from um, the Lakota people, um, for instance, in North America, and then in China, the story repeats. The Cherokee people have this connection as well, and that is with three regions of space. The Bible also identifies these three regions of space. Um, now, I say regions of space because one is an actual star system. That's the Pleiades. One is a, a constellation, which is um, Orion. And uh, there's a third one that I've just blanked on um, the Sirius star system. There we are. Those are the three that ancient cultures all talk about as being the source of the people who came and helped. So the Dogon people of Mali, West Africa, they say their roots are in the Sirius star system. I think at Sirius C, there's a planet orbiting that, and that's where their distant ancestry finds its origins. Um, there's a similar story in China and a belief that that's where our consciousness returns to after this life on Earth. And then the Pleiades are mentioned as being the source of the people who came and did an intervention tens of thousands of years ago to teach Aboriginal Australians and Native Americans how to farm and how to live in harmony with planet Earth. And that really intrigues me because the Australian Aboriginal peoples and Native Americans have a very similar ethos in terms of living in balance with the earth. But then there's another story from much more recently, about 10,000 years ago, the Babylonian story of Oannes and the Apkalu, and that correlates with another intervention to do with farming, only that model is much more about dominating 
nature, genetically modifying crops, and laying the foundations for farming on an industrial level that means you can build cities and have empires. And what I find intriguing about that is that the culture of Oadis and the Apkalu seems very different from the Pleiadian culture. And I wonder if those two interventions in our history are uh, actually the framing of what we're seeing right now, where in the 21st century we've got farming wars on with these two totally different models of farming at loggerheads, the traditional rotational combination organic approach versus the petrochemical GM industrial approach. And that's one of the scars that I talk about in The Scars of Eden. One of the things that is in our history and in our psychology that seems to be an echo of these different interventions in our development as a species and the conflicts they set up are playing out to this very day. Paul, you have a history with the church. As you were researching, discovering, interpreting, and writing about these ideas in your books, what was it doing to your faith? What was it doing to your beliefs um, as you were turning these pages and writing new ones to define them? Well, it provided me with a heap of very interesting questions. I'll certainly say that. <laughs> and I think that the moment you sort of acknowledge the probability that we're in a populated universe, I think your understanding of God has to shift. It has to become a more a bigger vision, a more cosmic vision. And so I went back and reread a lot of texts in the Bible with that in mind, and I was really intrigued to find that the Apostle Paul, really critical figure to the development of Christianity, gives a very helpful definition of God in one of his sermons when he's preaching to the Greeks in Athens. He says, by God, I mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it. And I think if that's how you understand God, then having a populated universe uh, only tells you that the source has produced more than you thought. But it also reframes questions of Jesus because I discovered, well, I say discovered as if nobody knew this before, but I rediscovered for myself that Plato was a really important figure in framing early Christianity. He believed in God exactly the same way Paul described him, but he also believed that there were interventions from non-terrestrial beings who came and modified our ancestors to adapt us for greater consciousness and intelligence and to lead us to being the technological species that we are today. And as I read Plato, I realized that his understanding of who we are, where consciousness comes from, that in the beginning was consciousness, just as um, quantum research is now suggesting to us, that the prime organizing principle is consciousness, and then the material universe is a function of that. Plato frames our story as people in that way. He says we begin as consciousness, as part of the cosmic consciousness, then we individuate, then we have this material experience on planet Earth, and then we go on to some other more cosmic experience of consciousness. Now, as Plato tells that story, and as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, hold on, that's exactly how John tells the story of Jesus. Jesus describes himself that way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he begins in that cosmic place. Then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus is praying, and he says, Now I'm going to return to you, Father, back to the source, back to the glory we enjoyed before the foundation of the world. And I thought, that 
is a very different understanding of the soul's journey. Jesus is actually laying that out for us, and it makes me rediscover Jesus in a very different light. But there's another reframing as well, because cultures around the world have stories of hybridization, and they also have stories of pregnancies that are altered or um, adapted or even initiated by a close encounter of some kind. It's there in Christianity. It's there in Judaism. So Abraham and Sarah, they have a close encounter with three sky people, as the Sumerians called them, and then the wife is pregnant, Sarah's pregnant. And that story is echoed by the story of John the Baptist's parents and the story of Jesus's parents and the story of Lao Tzu and the story of the Yellow Emperor and the story of Vipassi, the 22nd incarnation of Buddha before uh, Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. And you realize these stories are global as well. Now, you can read those stories in the distant past and think, clearly, these stories are made up to add kudos to a, a prince or a religious authority. But then it's just like the abduction stories. These stories carry on today, only today, mothers don't tell these stories. They don't expect, you know, to get a better job by coming out with a story of uh, the third child that sounds like that. Right. And they hold these stories very, very closely. But I find you write a book like Escaping from Eden, and people will begin to trust you with their most private stories. And I find that those kind of narratives continue to this day. So again, back to your question, it just gives a much bigger context for Jesus, as well as giving a bigger context for God. And it just shines a light on how institutional Christianity and institutional religion has really narrowed our worldview so that we miss some of these very, very, very interesting layers of the story that our ancestors felt much freer to talk about. As these stories were um, recorded in, in early texts uh, of the Bible, and as the Bible itself was uh, retranslated, rewritten, reorganized, restructured, and some of these stories were watered down. Was that done intentionally, or is that just a natural evolution of of uh, a, a text that you know was written several thousand years ago? Uh, intentionally and accidentally. So that edit of the Bible that I mentioned in the sixth century BCE, they intentionally turned it into a story of monotheism. They did not want stories with too many gods in them, and so they simplified those stories. And in so doing, they obliterated the ancestral stories about E.T. contact. They also, unfortunately, came up with a very distorted picture of God. There's another moment in history where something very, very similar happened, and it was when um, Peru uh, was invaded by Spain. and the Spanish arrivals turn up and the locals bow down to them. And they look at the leader. I've just suddenly, that is uh, Francisco Pizarro, isn't it? They, they kneel down to him and they say, are you Viracocha? And the reason that they ask, are you Viracocha, is because the Andean culture had stories of a powerful being in the distant past who had genetically engineered their ancestors 
And he was described in one of their stories as being a man of medium height with white clothing, uh, a book, and a staff. And these Spanish officers had turned up with white clothing and a holy book that they were going to now uh, share with South America and Central America, and staffs that were very powerful. They could fire bullets. And so they looked uncannily like this Viracocha figure. Are you Viracocha? Well, Francisco Pizarro and his officers had the presence of mind to say, tell us what you know of Viracocha. And they said, oh, he's a very powerful being. He created our civilization. He got very upset with us at one time and genocided our ancestors with a flood. And when the Spanish heard that, they said, oh, okay, genocided with a flood. Yes, what you call Viracocha, we call God, and we are servants of God. And they thought, oh, this is great. We fast-tracked the uh, Catholicization uh, of Peru here and South America here. Uh, but unfortunately, it was a confusion because Viracocha was not God. Read all the stories and you realize he's a powerful being, but he's not God. And morally, he was just as questionable as a human being, especially when it came to genociding people. So now all of a sudden, these poor Andean peoples are living in a universe that has a God who genocides people. So the same confusion about the Elohim genociding people in Genesis has now been imposed on a new culture with a new name. And so obedience to the Spanish uh, in one part of South America and the Portuguese in, in another part has now been anchored to this whole feudal structure with God at the top, the king of Spain and the king of Portugal and the pope underneath, and then Central and South Americans at the bottom because they had deliberately confused these ancient stories of E.T. colonizers with stories of God. Uh, now, you could say that was an accident. Maybe it was an innocent mistake. But you have to realize that as this imposition of the new Catholic orthodoxy was made, what they deliberately did was to extinguish all other stories. And that meant executing all the priesthoods who carried other knowledge and archiving ancient books that had another explanation of where we all came from. Most of the copies of those books were burned, they were destroyed. A few copies sent to the royal libraries of the King of Spain, the King of Portugal, and the Pope's libraries in the Vatican. Now we know what was in those books, because 200 years later, the uh, Mayan priesthood still existed in some shape or form, and the priests of the Feathered Serpent went to a Dominican priest who they trusted. And they said, can we tell you the story that our ancestors knew, the one that we have kept for the last 200 years since the invasion? And not only did he listen, uh, this was Francisco Jimenez, but he translated the document they gave him. And it became the Popol Vuh. And it tells the story of how their and our ancestors were indeed engineered from a primate ancestor by ET entities who came to our planet and occupied it thousands of years ago. So that's an example of a deliberate suppression of old knowledge and an implantation of new knowledge and a deliberate confusion of stories just to take control of the narrative. Because when you take over a country, you decide what, what is news and what is subversive. You decide what is true and what is false. And so the suppression of the ET story was all part 
of that imperial takeover. And that's just one example, but obviously it happens time and again through history. We're talking tonight with Paul Anthony Wallace, writer and researcher. His new book is called The Scars of Eden. Do you consider it a sequel to Escaping Eden? Well, if if you read Escaping from Eden, yes, it's a sequel. It will it will take you more widely around the world. It will take you more deeply into some of these narratives. But I've written The Scars of Eden also as a gateway book. So you could give it to someone with zero knowledge, zero awareness, zero interest in the topic, and it will take that reader from zero to a place where they're saying, oh, my goodness, there's something real and serious here that I can give my attention to. So it's a book that anyone can read and make a journey with. Paul, what about other religious leaders? I asked you about what it did to your faith. Have you had any reaction from any other religious leaders of note? I've been amazed by the overwhelmingly positive response I've had from other people in Christian ministry in particular, from pastors who've contacted me and said, thank you so much for putting this on the table because I've seen all this in the texts as well and there's nowhere to talk about it. Or they say, thank you for putting it on the table because I've had to deal with parishioners who've had abduction experiences had close encounters, who have a child they believe is an indigo child, and I've never, or a star child, and I've never known how to respond. And now we can have a conversation. Now we can explore this. But there's a little bit of ambivalence too, and there's a uh, priest I'm in contact with in the UK who for quite some time has been involved in the Church of England, in the Church of England's ministry in the area of the paranormal. And so what that usually means, every diocese will have a paranormal ministry unit, and that generally involves deliverance-type ministry, entity removal, exorcism, that kind of thing. Right. And in two dioceses, this pastor has gone to the team, which uh, may have the bishop as the team leader or another senior clergy person, and they've said, I've been in two parishes now where numbers of people have had close encounters, abduction experiences. We need to develop a theological response and a pastoral response so we know how to deal with this. And uh, the bishop has said, yes, you're absolutely right. Please never mention it again. (laughs) And so there is, unfortunately, that kind of a taboo still in some religious circles. But generally, this response to me uh, from people who get in contact with me has been overwhelmingly positive. From time to time, I'll have someone contacting me saying, this is blasphemy. Uh, you're an agent of the devil. You're yeah. luring people to hell, et cetera, et cetera. But do you know what? 90% of the time, when I come back and say, well, thank you so much for your message, can I just explain how I've come to this conclusion and say I'm not out to debunk the Bible. I'm really there to understand it. And this is how I've formed these views. Nine times out of ten, by the end of two exchanges, we're the best of friends uh, because they understand that's where I'm coming from. I think it's only a a very few who hold their faith uh, like a Jenga tower, where if you take one piece out, you know, the whole thing collapses. I, I think for most who are more anchored in that kind of way. They know what they know, but they can be agnostic about things. They can review their thinking. That's the bulk of the response I get. And I have been very pleasantly surprised by how encouraging and how positive the feedback has been to the scars of Eden, those who are aware of it, and certainly to escaping from Eden. 
you, uh, in the process of writing and publishing this book, you've had some conversations with some what we would call heavyweights in this particular field, one of which is Eric Von Daniken. And I think you even have a quote on the cover of your book from Eric Von Daniken, of course, author of Charity of the Gods. Um, you know, his, his word carries a lot of weight when it comes to these topics. What, you know, what, what are your thoughts and what did you hear from folks like that about this work? Well, I was uh, thrilled to have a conversation with Eric Von Daniken because I first encountered him when I was 11 years old mm-hmm. and my parents introduced me to his work and I read Chariots of the Gods and it, it got my thinking matter wearing away. In a funny way, it actually led me into the world of faith and the world of ministry. I was in ministry for 33 years as a church doctor, but it gave me a lot of more cosmic questions. And I was thrilled to talk to Eric because I wanted to know how his thinking had changed in 50 years. Uh, You know, he weathered a big storm around that book, and some people really went to town on uh, pointing out all his uh, mistakes. But he persisted, and he's continued researching that field. So I wanted to know how his thinking had changed. And I also wanted to ask him, uh, because I'm a little bit aware of uh, the very interesting history around Carl Sagan, who years ago went to town debunking Eric von Daniken, and then I discovered he actually agreed with most of what Eric von Daniken said. So I wanted to ask Eric von Daniken, has he had real heavyweight intellectual academic people say to him, Eric, you're on the right track. I've got this information that confirms what you're saying, but don't quote me and I'm not going to support you publicly. And he said, yes, that happens to him all the time. And I said, doesn't that absolutely frustrate you? Because I I would be so annoyed if people support me privately and, and haven't got the guts to support me publicly. And he said, oh, no, no, no. If someone says they want to give me something, uh, but they don't want to be quoted, I always honor that privacy because I get so much information that way. And he said, that is really why I'm so confident that I am on the right track. But if I went around outing people, that would be the end of that whole supply of information. And he said, the way the academic world works is that peer review uh, can be so conservative because of people anxious for their jobs, essentially, that the radical new idea is almost always going to come from outside of the academic circle. Uh, So that's the role of the writer. Um, And then the academics can discuss it. And that way we can move the conversation forward. But we can't really expect it to come from people who are professors who are going to put the whole livelihood or reputation on the line to say, here's something you're going to find impossible to believe. And I enjoyed that conversation because I recognize that. I'm very happy to play that role, not to be a professor but to be a writer who puts the knowledge on the table for the general reader and hopefully moves the public conversation forward a little bit. So that was something I really gained from talking to Eric Von Daniken and thrilled to have him on the cover, absolutely. Yeah, that's something certainly to be proud of. Let's talk a little bit about some of these people that have reached out to you. And of course, obviously, I'm not asking you to betray anyone's confidence at all. But if you get people that reach out to you and talk about actually having hybrid children, today, alive now, do they ever have an opportunity to offer you any kind of medical substantiation for any of that? Jane Pooley, when she went on Australian television, this is very interesting, um, 
I really applaud Channel 9 and Studio 10 for carrying that story. She was interviewed by Ita Buttrose, who was the chair of Australian ABC, and she was given a very, very respectful interview in which she talked about her close encounter experiences from the age of five until now, and she's, she's about my age, and she talked about having produced hybrid children. When they ran that story, they absolutely ran it as a, here's an interesting story, make up your own mind what you make of it. Mm-hmm. They were willing to say that she passed a, um, a polygraph three times uh, that meant that she believed what she was saying was absolutely true. So they said that what they didn't do was share the medical information that she had provided them with to show them that something objective and real actually had happened. And they didn't go there. They didn't want to run a story that says um, all the evidence points <laughs> to this. They just wanted it as a you-make-up-your-mind kind of story. Now, uh, in my experience, I'm not grilling people that way. Right. And usually when people come and share their experiences, they do it very tentatively, very um, nervous, if I can put it that way, they would do a lot to sound me out to see if I'm a safe person for them to share their story. So they're not looking for me to promote their story. They're sharing it because they want to process it. And then what I've found as I've listened is that the details from one person to the next, these people don't know each other, they're from all around the world, the details repeat and confirm that something objective has happened and is being experienced. And that sort of echoes what I learned about um, Professor John Mack's work, where U.S. defense had tasked him to evaluate the psychological reliability of defense force personnel who had claimed abduction experiences. And some of them were hybridization stories as well. And he was the uh, head of Harvard's Department of Clinical Psychology. Uh, so fair to say, an expert in his field. And as he retrieved memories from those people, again, it was the correlating details from person to person that clued him that something objective had happened. And he would often go in with what the hearer would feel was a quite unpredictable secondary question. So the person in a state of deep relaxation would be describing their encounter. And then Professor Mack would say, let me just pause you. Just turn your head to the left and tell me what you can see. And they would describe what they saw in their experience. Now I want you to look to the right. Tell me what you can see. Just at this point, tell me what you can feel. And it was the answers to those secondary questions that lined up from person to person over 50 case studies. And so again, it was the correlations that told him, these people have all experienced the same thing. And it was that that drew him to the conclusion that they had experienced something objectively real that merited further exploration. And that really echoes my own experience of people coming to me with their stories. Having been in ministry for 33 years, you always have certain filters on. You're always asking questions about the person's perceptions, their mental health, if it's an experience or if it's an interpretation of an experience. And I do hear from some people that I just have to uh, listen with a lot of question marks. But I also hear from people whose testimony is very, very reliable 
and has been part of what has shifted my own worldview. I now believe that you could sit down in any friendship circle or family circle, and if you ask the question, have you ever experienced something anomalous that suggests there may be other presences on planet Earth, I don't think there would be a family circle or a friendship circle anywhere that wouldn't have some kind of a story if we could just lift that threat of ridicule from our conversations. And part of the reason I wrote The Scars of Eden is really to call on people to do that. Um, I don't have a dramatic story of my own, like Jane Pooley's or like a Whitley Strieber, but I have had experiences where I can say something funny happened to me. I'm not sure what it was. I just remember a fragment of it, and I don't know what happened next. And I put that in the book to encourage people to share their own strange, half-remembered, don't-quite-understand-it stories, because I think if we all do that, if we're willing to do that in our friendship circles, you'll be surprised at what bigger picture begins to emerge. And it'll be a grassroots movement of disclosure, I think, if we can get conversations like that happening. And I'd also have to believe that people will come forward and share their stories with you, maybe even tepidly, because they... They need someone who will understand what they're talking about. They need someone who will empathize with what they've gone through as opposed to just be curious about it. And, and yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, that's got to be part of it. That's absolutely right. I mean, I heard from uh, one person who is uh, in his late 30s, and something happened to him when he was 12 years old. It was a very disturbing close encounter, and it really changed his life but he was never able to talk to his parents about it. Uh, but finally, in his late 30s, he thought, I just have to explain to my mum and dad what happened. And he did, and they rolled around laughing at him. Mm. Uh, and then he came and talked to me because, strangely, his parents hadn't helped him to process uh, what had happened. I should say, by the way, other people have a very different experience where they've held a story privately and then finally, often in their late 30s, they'll say, uh, look, mom, dad, I, I want to tell you something that happened to me when I was 12. And it's at that point that the parents will disclose their own experiences. Uh, and that can be a tremendously healing and empowering moment. But you can see both generations have held these stories in private and have been uh, isolated by the experience instead of sharing their experiences so they can begin to get their heads around it. From time to time, I hear from, uh, and I've noticed men in their 60s who have retired and are now in a place where they can just pause and take a bit of reflection on their life, and they come to me and they'll tell me a story that they, they'll say something like this, I've told my wife, I've spoken with the person who was with me when I experienced this, and I haven't told another living, breathing soul in the 50 years since. And they'll be talking about a close encounter, an experience of ET contact. And they've held it that privately, that close for 50 years because they don't believe there's anyone in their circle who would understand it or who could listen without laughing. And I count it as an absolute privilege when people like that come to me and say, it happened 50 years ago, but I still need to process what happened. I need to talk to someone about it. 
Is it your experience that as we see some form of disclosure, and we're almost out of time here, but, you know, we, we opened up this discussion talking about uh, the U.S. government, the Israeli government, some uh, very uh, high-profile individuals coming forward with stories of substantiation of, of what is happening. As that happens, Paul, do people feel a little more comfortable telling their story? Well, I hope they will. Uh, I hope they will. They certainly should, if they can keep their eye on the news and realize how much information is out there, that there has been, in effect, an official acknowledgement of an extraterrestrial presence because we're examining materials from their craft, then, yes, it ought to give us courage to say, well, actually, I have an experience that lines up with that. But it depends somewhat on the media as well because the media might take a while to catch up yeah. with this cultural shift and talk about these things in a way that is not ridiculing. And this is why I think shows like yours, JV, are so important, because you create a place where people can have these conversations. I know in America there's been a, a longer tradition of independent radio, Art Bell, etc., where there's been a place for people to share stories that are off the syllabus, so to speak. But in other countries, we haven't had that. We haven't had that in Australia. Now that we've got YouTube, now that we've got the Internet, now that we've got shows like yours, if people want to, they can hear far more. But it's very much my hope that the Scars of Eden will put this on the table so that more people can have conversations about it. If just one person in a friendship group has read The Scars of Eden and says, let me tell you about this book I'm reading, I hope that it sparks heaps and heaps of interesting conversations where we can begin to talk honestly about our own anomalous and paranormal experiences. The book will be released at the end, I think you said the end of April, but you said it can be pre-ordered. How can people pre-order it? You go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, wherever books are sold, and you can pre-order your copy there. And then as soon as release day comes, they'll send it to you and you'll get one of the first batch. I'd encourage people to do that because we sold out on escaping from Eden so many times in the first couple of weeks. And I'm sure the same will happen with the scars of Eden. So put your pre-order in now and you'll get your copy and you'll be one of the first wave. That's terrific. Your, your work is fabulous, Paul. I appreciate you sharing it with us. And you do such a great job of uh, explaining it in a way that even if you don't really have much of this background, it's easy to understand. And that's, that's really helpful as well. So thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate it. Oh, JV, thanks so much for having me on again. I love talking with you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by JV Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.